All right, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30. We'll just read verses 30 through 35 as our preaching text this morning. This is the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered him, Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. All the disciples said the same. This passage is a call to reality, which is also a call to humility. This is a passage that's intended to introduce the reader to himself in a way that we don't generally want to be introduced to ourselves. This is a text that shatters any illusions of spiritual grandeur that we may be carrying around with us, and it ensures that we leave this passage of Scripture knowing that there is only one who is truly grand. And it's not you, and it's not me, and it's not the disciples in the narrative. In verse 31, Jesus called the apostles shots, saying that, these very confident disciples who fancied themselves faithful, Peter in particular, are going to be shown that cowardice and infidelity is actually their natural state. Cowardice and infidelity is actually their natural state, not fortitude and faithfulness in the way that they had assumed. Jesus knows that pressure, trial, and suffering have a revelatory effect in the life of a believer. So Jesus is going to use trial, suffering, and pressure to expose, and as was taught last week, to begin unleavening his disciples, that is, purging those things that are undesirable and unholy in them, which requires first exposing that it is there. When everything's good with your health and your family and your finances and your social standing, being faithful and well-behaved and at least externally godly is a relatively easy, easy feat to accomplish, isn't it? Especially in the, the Bible Belt, morally saturated South, where we know that you have to kind of behave a certain way and present yourself a certain way. And, you know, that's sort of the social standard of the day. And again, that's a relatively easy thing to maintain when all is well in the categories that were just mentioned. But if you start putting cracks in the foundation, so to speak, if you start putting cracks in those things that constitute our sense of security, your health, your family, your finances, your upward mobility. Watch what people turn into. Watch who people turn into. Watch what we become capable of doing when in the grip of fear, insecurity, or despondency. John Owen said that the seed of every sin exists in the soil of every human heart. The seed of every conceivable, every imaginable sin exists in the soil of every human heart. What he meant by that was that humans are so affected and afflicted by original sin that all we need to draw out the worst kind of offenses against God and man is the right circumstances. That's what he meant. Unbeknownst to the disciples, 
They were one test away from a fall that they did not see coming themselves, despite having been told by the Lord Jesus himself. This is why Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. This is also why, while we're never supposed to be soft on sin or dismissive of it or dance around it verbally or euphemize it away in the, in the way that our culture loves to do, we are, also, we are also not permitted to deal harshly with those who have fallen or look down our noses at them as if we're incapable of such a fall ourselves. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And notice he says bear one another's burdens in the context of somebody having been caught in a transgression. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know that no one has a tragic moral failure or an egregious acquaintance with immorality that they planned ahead of time, right? You know, most people don't just come to this place where as far as anyone can tell, things are going well and they have a massive fall without something having been brewing beneath the surface. The disciples certainly didn't plan to deny or abandon Christ, did they? Did they, did they plan that fall? They woke up one day, they're like, you know what, I'm done. <laughs> they didn't plan that. Everyone starts out like the disciples. I never fill in the blank. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even capable of such a thing. I, I would never do, again, fill in the blank. No one who's ever had an affair that broke up their family and led to alimony and child support payments ever started their day thinking, you know what? What is it, Tuesday? Tuesday, yeah. Seems like a good, uh, seems like a good day for uh, messing up my kids and destroying my, my life. Let's pencil that in for, say, 1130. It's not how it happens. It's not how it happens. The trajectory of your life and mine is not determined by a single moment or an isolated decision, but by a million tiny moments and seemingly inconsequential decisions that shape the kind of person that you are the kind of sensitivities that you have, the kinds of things that you've trained yourself to love and to hate, to be offended by or entertained by. The decision to watch this movie instead of that movie is a decision to be shaped in this direction as opposed to that direction. The decision to spend time with this person instead of that person is a decision to be influenced in this way as opposed to being influenced in that way. The decision to be unnecessarily prickly and gruff towards your spouse and to never acknowledge or apologize for the gruffness is a decision to get better and better at sinning against them without feeling bad about it. All of these are decisions that are setting a trajectory for where our life is headed. Everything that we do is formative, entrenching, feeding, and growing one thing or another in our hearts and lives, or to return to the language of Matthew chapter 26, we're always being leavened. We are always being leavened. It's not a question of whether or not you're being leavened. It's just a question of who or what is leavening you. But you are being permeated with some way of thinking, feeling, acting, and existing in the world. See, you and I are not God, which means we're not immutable. We are, in fact, 
capable of change in both a positive and negative direction. We are imminently influenceable, easily changed and swayed. And that means that you can be in a season of moral strength that gives way to a season of moral decline. And so the inspired apostle says, quote, keep watch on yourself. Keep watch on yourself because all you need is the right influences for the right amount of time or the right kind of pressure. And you'll be the one in need of gentle restoration yourself, even though perhaps last time you were the one who was spiritual doing the restoring. You see, through this passage about the disciples' fall, the Lord wants to make sure that we're acquainted with our frailty and our need for Christ's fortitude and forgiveness because we lack one of those things and we're in need of the other. We're lacking the fortitude we need, the forgiveness. This text is working to explode any arrogant presumption of spiritual strength that you and I may have. Any, any inaccurate assessment of who we are and what we're morally capable of. Jesus said, you will all fall away because of me this night, in speaking to his disciples. And Peter answered him, though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And here's the terrifying thing. They meant it. They meant it. They were absolutely sincere. There's nothing in the text at all that would indicate that they were anything but sincere in their declaration of love and faithfulness to their Savior. They loved their Lord. They'd already sacrificed much for him in becoming his disciples, hadn't they? And then imagine what they'd seen as they traveled with him these three years during his, his ministry. They'd watched the Spirit of God work wonders through him. They saw him multiply the loaves and the fish to feed God's people. They saw him heal and restore those who'd been put outside the camp and reintegrate them into the life of God's people. They saw him command the wind and the waves. They knew that he was worthy of them leaving their livelihoods and their families to follow him wherever he went and to do whatever he told them to do. And they had done that. They had done that. So when they said, we're with you, Jesus, we will not abandon, forsake, or betray you, they thought they were telling the truth. Feel that with me. They thought they were telling the truth. They thought that they were making a promise that they could keep. But they failed to budget for their fallenness and frailty. These men, though well-intentioned, thought that they were more than they were. What Peter literally says is striking. In the ESV, verse 33 reads like this. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. But here's how I'm told the earliest manuscripts read in Greek. It would have read like this. Even if all are stumbled in you, I at no time will be stumbled. You hear how emphatic that is? I at no time will be stumbled. He's saying to the Lord Jesus, my affection for you, my faithfulness to you, my sense of duty and loyalty is so strong that I at no time will be stumbled in the way that you're predicting. 
And see, as, as hyper-conservative, reformed, study Bible-toting, multisyllabic, theological word-using Christians like, uh, like us, we're in danger of believing the same thing about ourselves. We're in danger of believing the exact same thing about ourselves, especially given our track record. Especially given our track record. We weren't fooled by wokeness, were we? Saw right through that nonsense. We weren't fooled by the love your neighbor trope during the COVID nonsense. Saw right through that too. Discerning. Saw it. Never once countenanced the LGBTQ craziness. Never gave it an inch. For us, it'd be really easy to at least feel what Peter expressed. I at no time will be stumbled. You know the guys who I read on my bookshelf? You know where I go to church? It's in a barn. We're serious. <laughs> you see, Peter assumed that his past faithfulness was a guarantor of future faithfulness. He believed that his past faithfulness was a guarantor of future faithfulness. You remember what Peter said in Matthew chapter 19 after Jesus had the discussion with the rich young ruler? Jesus had promised that anyone who left houses or land or family would be rewarded 100-fold. And do you remember what Peter said at the end of that conversation? Here's what he said. He said, we left everything to follow you, Lord. What then will our reward be? And here's the thing. Jesus didn't disagree with him, did he? He said, you have left everything. You have been faithful. And then he told them exactly how he was going to reward them. you got to think that in this moment, that's what's playing through Peter's mind. He's thinking about his track record. You see, Peter can be forgiven for taking offense that his faithfulness would be called into question because after all, look at what he's already done. Jesus, we left everything. We've given our lives to you these last three years. And now you're going to look me in the face and say, I'm going to depart? I'm going to deny you? Jesus, do you know what you're saying? Do you not know the depth of of my love and loyalty for you. Peter can be forgiven for taking offense. His problem was that he assumed that past faithfulness was a guarantee of future faithfulness. And we are in danger of taking the same offense and having the same blind assumption that past faithfulness guarantees future faithfulness. It doesn't. It doesn't. It'd be easy for us to think, even though everyone else stumbles, falls, compromises, and cowers, we at no time will be stumbled. We may think of ourselves as the Marines of the Christians and all those people with coffee bars, thermostats, and screens for their lyrics. They're like the Air Force or something. I don't know. <laughs> David Platt may stumble, Al Mohler may fall, Alistair Begg may falter, but we at no time will be stumbled. <laughs> this text is teaching us that if we think or feel that way, much less speak that way, we've already fallen. We've already fallen. If Peter can fall, you can. If Judas can be in the presence of, under the personal pastoral ministry of Jesus himself in the flesh and still be carried off by the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, becoming more concerned with money than with ministry, guess what? I can too. I can too. 
This passage means to force us to face reality, which ought to induce humility. If they can fall, if they can falter, if they can fail, if they can fall away, you can. I can. After acquainting us with the reality of ourselves as frail, prone to wander, and likely to fall, this passage then becomes a useful aid in helping us to think through how we're going to respond to the fall and stumbling of others. Once that reality soaks in and we find ourselves at the mercy of Christ, not making wild declarations about our own fortitude and faithfulness, but saying nothing Nothing do I bring. I'm just clinging to your cross. I'm not bringing any fidelity to the table. I'm not bringing anything that would commend myself to you. No, I've got nothing. I've got failing and faltering that I can offer. And I'd like for you to nail it to the cross, please. And then raise me up to new life and make me something that I could never be without the impartation and empowerment of your spirit. This text brings us first to that place. We look at these men, better men than us, more access to the Lord Jesus, at least in that fleshly, earthly sense, than we had, saw more than we've seen. If they can fall, I can fall. And so we tighten our grip on the faithfulness and strength of Christ to forgive us when we fail and falter rather than making wild declarations that we never will. That's the first place that this passage brings us. But after having been brought to that point, again, it invites us to consider what will our response be when these falls and stumblings happen in our midst. How do you respond when it's your friend who falls away in some terrible sin or betrayal of Christ? How do you respond when it's your family member who has denied him? How do you respond when a Bible teacher or ministry leader from whom you've learned a great deal stumbles into error or sin? Well, a proper response, as we've considered, begins with a sober recognition that you aren't better than they are. As a starting point, you're not better than they are. You're not an impregnable city whose walls the enemy cannot scale. But we often criticize the fallen as if from a place of greater stability than the Bible teaches we're actually on. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 6, 1 through 3. It's worth another read. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul is saying that you engage the fallen person in a manner that acknowledges your own capacity to have been the one who fell. That's what that engagement entails. Now, if a person is unrepentant, recalcitrant, and unresponsive to the church's discipline, then Scripture is clear about the ostracism and distance that must come to characterize that relationship. But that's only after prayer, pleading, and due process, as Matthew 18 lays out. It's not done swollen with pride 
or at a quick pace. Now, part of the reason that this text took me in this direction for application is because of a controversy that erupted this week surrounding a well-known Reformed Bible teacher named Alistair Begg. Some of you have heard of him, some of you haven't. It doesn't really matter in terms of this being something from which we can learn. A grandmother who listens to and follows his ministry wrote in with a question asking if she should attend her grandson's, quote, transgender so-called wedding. Grandma's afflicted by this, trying to figure out how she's supposed to orient herself in this troubling situation. And here's how Pastor Begg responded. He asked her if she had expressed her dissent and asserted biblical truth, making it clear that she could not affirm his sin. She said that she had done that. He said, well, in that case and in this situation, I'd go to the wedding and I would take them a gift in order to build a bridge into their lives that may be used of God. Now, as you can imagine, his advice has set the internet on fire. Ablaze almost entirely with dissent and disagreement with Pastor Begg on this point. Twitter was not ablaze with affirmation, but in many instances, actually defamation. Now, the first thing that observation ought to elicit the first thing that when we look at the fact that Pastor Begg is under fire and that there's dissent from his advice, the first thing that I should elicit from us is gratitude and thanksgiving to God that the church has by and large woken up from her seeker-sensitive slumber that was more concerned with cultural placation than preaching truth. We're awake now. And everybody who heard that advice said, uh, that's wrong. That's bad advice. The landscape has changed, and the church is in the process of reformation as I'm speaking. That's happening. God has poured out his spirit upon his people, and they are requiring more of their leaders. This development is most welcome and should be an encouragement to us. We went from the church, every denomination in America, being in very real danger of a wholesale embrace of LGBTQ insanity just as recently as 2019 to just five years later, a guy in our ranks can't get away with saying, you know, people have to know that we stand with Christ, but, but I also know that we have to find a meaningful way to reach out to those people who are far from him, and maybe one of those ways could be showing up at the wedding. Now, I'm not saying that Begg was right in his counsel. As I've already said, he was seriously wrong. My point is that Alistair Begg found himself in a pot of boiling water for making a statement that would have been fairly comfortable for him to have made just five years ago, when men were getting away with making far less conservative statements than the one that he made. That's my point. In bringing this up. Biblical standards among God's people are being reinstated and our moral consciousness and commitment to God's word is being restored as evidenced by the overwhelmingly correct assessment that Pastor Begg's counsel to that grandmother was wrong. This is good news. In this instance, Pastor Begg was shooting at the right target Find a way to meaningfully engage tax collectors and sinners. Good target. Biblical target. But he had bad aim. 
He had bad aim, and God's people were discerning enough to realize that he missed his shot. Pastor Begg was trying to help this grandmother do a biblical thing, but in an unbiblical way that compromised one biblical principle in an attempt to uphold another. That's what's happening here. Again, it's a positive development among God's people that Begg was rebuked and not praised for his counsel. But most of you know that I'm also about to draw out a negative observation about this dust-up as it relates to this morning's sermon text, don't you? (laughs) Begg's critics are ironically making a mistake that's similar to the one that they're critiquing. They're aiming at the right target. Restore a stumbled brother and correct error. Hold biblical lines. But many of them are bad shots themselves. Because in their zeal to uphold one biblical standard, they're unwittingly violating another one. The Twitter mob knows that we're not permitted to call good evil or evil good. Therefore, we cannot attend a wedding that enshrines as good that which is evil. Excellent. Good. That's correct. Don't go. Accurate. But what's taking place in the public outcry against Beg is largely what the Bible calls biting and devouring one another. People are condemning him harshly when Scripture calls us to work toward restoration gently. Those who oppose Beg don't get to choose which biblical principles to uphold any more than he does. You see the irony in the way that the criticism is being brought. The conservative movement within the church, of which we are happily and unashamedly a part, has shown itself to be censorious, arrogant, and blind in its reaction, at least in this most recent engagement. And so what's my point and why spend so much time on that illustration, particularly for those of you who wouldn't have known that it was going on if I didn't bring it up? What's the purpose in bringing it up? Well, one reason is the fact that that wedding invitation could soon find itself in your mailbox, and you'll you'll be better off for having considered that now rather than when you check the mail. The other reason is because we're in a historical moment of reformation and transformation among God's people, and that's exciting. That's exciting, truly. we're, We're in a moment of reformation and transformation that ought to excite us. But remember your history. Seasons of reformation in the church always, always, always mean tense, fighting, tension, and contest. Think about the history of reformations in the church. What do they bring with them? Fighting. Lots of it. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end of the Old Covenant Age in AD 70, God's people went through a a period of what the the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 calls the time of reformation. What did that process of reform entail? Well, you've read your New Testament, haven't you? What did that time of reformation entail? Infighting, strife, tension, apostasy, rancor, and violence among God's people, of which the New Testament authors are constantly speaking, or to which they are constantly speaking, primarily with calls to unity, peace, brotherhood, and patience. Have you ever wondered why it is that they're making such a big deal about how to deal with controversy properly? Like, Paul can't write an epistle without talking to each other about how to disagree. Why they have to have the Jerusalem council and figure out what they were going to do as things were moving forward? The reason is because they were in the middle of a reformation, and when reformation happens, 
Little wars break out all over the bride and body of Christ. And he's saying, you've got to learn how to engage in that without biting and devouring one another. How about you fast forward to the 16th century Reformation of the church, which split Catholics and Protestants? What did that process of reform entail? Infighting, strife, tension, apostasy, rancor, and violence among God's people again. You see? The question I'm wondering is whether or not we've learned anything from the first two reformations and other smaller ones that we could note if time permitted. But have we learned anything from those reformations that may make us handle this one with more maturity, peace, and unity than was found in the earlier ones? Well, if the vitriolic, biting, defamatious reaction to beg is any indication of the kind of reformation that is brewing, we need some more help. We need some more help. May we be among those Christians who can do more than one thing at a time. We can confront sin and correct error while maintaining a gentle, humble spirit that engages in that necessary controversy in a way that knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that if Peter fell and Matthew fled, I'd better be careful because there's more than one way to stumble and fall. Do you know that? There's more than one way to stumble and fall. Sometimes we're myopic and we can see one of the ways that's possible for us to stumble and fall, and we're not thinking about all the other biblical passages that we could violate as we fight to uphold the one that we've zeroed in on. There's more than one way to betray and abandon Christ. You can do it through compromise with the world. We've become more and more sensitive to that, to that one. And so the Reformation has begun in earnest, good, right, I love it, let's go. Good. But you can also do it through mercilessness toward brothers in Christ who have fallen or with whom you disagree. Remember the lesson of Matthew chapter 25, how we treat each other in the household of faith is how we're treating whom? Christ himself. Christ himself. God is not keeping you and I from a fall so that we can feel superior to the fallen. It's not what's going on. He's kept us so that the fallen might be shown how to get up. That's the idea. So we engage in that spirit, maintaining our unity through the bond of peace. And, and Paul says that as we do it in Galatians 6, we fulfill the law of Christ. May it be well fulfilled among us. Let's pray.